and welcome to Twig 270. Today we have Philip Black, game economist at Game Economist Consulting. Happy Valentine's Day, Semla Day. <laughs> oh, that's right. On the recording, it is Valentine's Day. So Semla was before that for the Swedes in the house. Okay. <laughs> Eric Kress, principal at Gossamer Consulting Group. What up? Mishka Katkov, founder of Deconstructor of Fun. It's actually called Friends Day in Finland, which is kind of weird, but happy Friends Day. <laughs> oh, they're trying to make it more inclusive, I guess. It's been always like this, so <laughs> this is not a rebranding. <laughs> a lot of single people in Finland coping. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of desperate, lonely people yeah. <laughs> trying to find friends. <laughs> and I am Jen Donahoe, strategic marketing consultant at Beta Hat and Jade Inferno. Hey, everybody. So today's episode, we are going to dig into the latest blog from Supercell saying that they are uncomfortably comfortable. And if we have time, hopefully we will talk about how Disney invests in Epic and it's not Epic Mickey this time. So I don't think we have any other banter other than getting to shilling because March is busy for us, guys. We're on a world tour. Yeah, March is super busy. We're starting with Istanbul in the beginning of the month. We're going to main event on the 7th, Investors Summit on the 8th. You can sign up to the main event on Deconstructor Fun blog. Just go there. There's going to be a pop-up or a banner on the top. If you're not getting a ticket, I did a mistake last episode. I said, hey, just contact me if you're not getting a ticket. Please don't contact me. Actually, please contact Google. I got too many contacts from, from too many people. I cannot help you. Your Google contact person will be able to help you to get that ticket. Again, what's going to happen at GDC? So I'll speak to the marketing brunch, which we haven't put up a sign-up page yet. But on the 19th, which is the Tuesday... We are going to have a Deconstructor of Fun Apps Flyer Data AI Brunch with marketing product analyst folks. You can actually DM me if you would like, and I will try to get you in contact since we don't have the sign-up sheet yet. What's going on with your tech brunch? So actually on the same day, the 19th, we have a tech brunch happening at the same time with the marketing brunch. So with the tech brunch, tech leads, we're going to have Convoy Ventures and Heroic Labs. We're hosting roundtables for those tech leaders. So please join us. The link is actually going to be in the description below. If you're not a tech person, but the tech person from your company is going, send him this link. And final show, last episode, we talked about <laughs> monetize or die mug. And I had a little bit of a time, like 15 minutes. And <laughs> we actually have now mice nuts mugs, monetize or die mugs, as well as work from home hoodies that you can <laughs> get yourself on Deconstructor of Fun page. Just go to Deconstructor of Fun, go to store. And, you know, if you want to dominate the office space, you will have the mice nuts mug or the monetize or die mug. So I at least need to give you the font, my friend. This is not branding approved. <laughs> no, it's definitely a secret drop. <laughs> Mishka, you just can't fly off the handle here. You know, like the whole point of doing a logo revamp is to actually use the fucking logo <laughs> and the style guide, right? Instead, you just go off the fucking reservation, uh, dude. Jesus Christ. This was the whole process, by the way. This was the whole process. <laughs> this was a joke. So anyways, if you want to be a part of the joke, get yourself a Mice Nuts mug or a Monetizer Die mug, which people have actually bought. <laughs> Honestly, on the one hand, I'm like, oh my God, this is what it's come to. We're actually doing merch. But on the other hand, is that if you're going to do fucking merch, do it the right way. Don't do it the Mishka way, okay? This was an MVP. This was an MVP. Stay tuned. 
Although what I will tell you on the merch and the swag is I am working with a good friend from EA, Chris Dreyer, and I am going to surprise you and come up with some t-shirts that I'm going to just pay for out of my own pocket and bring with us to Istanbul and GDC and figure out how to do a little like reward for some of our fans and just give you a little with proper branding and approved branding, <laughs> some deconstructor of fun t-shirts. I'm also doing some jackets for the crew here, a little special jacket. So Damn. we're debating if it's pink or white with the new logo, but you know, we'll see what we do. Okay. Corrections. Corrections. Yeah. I'll start with a correction. I haven't done a correction in a long time. So Half Brick's $20 million Web3 loot bag is fake news. So actually, the company reached out. It was the funniest reach out that I've had in a long time. They're like, our CTO and our leadership team was looking in the meeting room, and we didn't see any $20 million. It was like a written a really funny way. And then they kind of went on this trade of like where this news originated, what was the Twitter handle, and all the other companies they've done. So anyways, this is an <laughs> absolute hoax. And yeah, they'll be at GDC, so we'll probably meet up and apologize there so that's the half brick no 20 million web 3 they're actually doing publishing now so i also am issuing not a correction but i guess i'm berating people for not reading matthew ball's piece i've seen a lot of reactions to at least what people appear to be one of his takeaways or they they think is one of his takeaways which is people overhired during covid and a lot of people are trying to take the easy dunk. Of course, COVID wasn't representative of long run gaming growth. It was really silly for gaming executives to do this. They're really stupid. Why are they doing it? And if you actually read Matthew Ball's piece, there's a lot of contradictory evidence to this. It's not as simple as that. So to give you an example, like Roblox is not doing layoffs. They ended up not only growing during the COVID period, they're actually above their pre-COVID trend line. We also have seen Steam explode in terms of popularity. So it's just not that simple. And that's why we need pieces like Matthew Ball's article to kind of go into the nuance to understand what's growing, what's not, and to help dissect all of it. But I would just encourage people to challenge their priors and their simple takeaways on what executives apparently did or did not do wrong. It's very hard to predict what is going to grow and what isn't going to grow but there are clearly some sectors of gaming which did experience long-run uplifts from COVID. It's not that simple. Well said. Neither is the article to read, just to be <laughs> clear. <laughs> I'll do a tweet version for you at some point. <laughs> All right, moving into quick hits. A few things going on. Unfortunately, the day that we're recording this, we are recording right before the big Xbox update that's coming out February 15th at noon Pacific time, 8 p.m. GMT. So we are not going to be able to cover it. You'll get us all covering it next week. So guys, we should actually get on the phone tomorrow and have a watch party at noon. I think that would be pretty fun. From what I could glean, there were a couple of tweets that came out that Phil apparently did a town hall inside of the company, and he said that Xbox isn't planning to stop making consoles. First of all, this is damage control at its finest, right? Like in a big company to make sure that they keep the people in line. Like, yes, that may be true in the short term that they are not making consoles, right, or traditional consoles, but... That does not mean that they're making consoles going forward in the next generation, or it's a different type of console where it's a streaming only console, right? Or whatever. So those reports are just what it is. It's just internal PR to basically damage control for his minions, you know? So we'll see what happens tomorrow. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I'm under no illusion that he's going to announce that they're not doing any consoles anymore. I mean, that's not happening tomorrow. I can guarantee you. So what he's saying is probably accurate from that perspective. 
But the question is whether their long-term, if they start going non-exclusive, then perhaps they will stop making consoles. Why would they make consoles, right, if they're not exclusive? So I didn't want to talk about this today because I figured we're going to know a lot more by tomorrow. So we'll talk about it next week. Got it. Okay. Also, same day, it's rumored that Nintendo Direct is going to be happening as well. I haven't, as of recording, haven't seen any date or time for that, but that's what the people were saying. So it would be a big day. Going a little bit more into earnings, this one kind of struck me as interesting. Did you guys see that Nexon was up 20% in their latest earnings? So they talked about MapleStory content in China. Growth was driven by Dungeon Fighter and MapleStory. Japan growth from Blue Archive. I don't even know what that is. It's a great game. It's a squad RPG. Makes sense. That feels like a perfect fit for Japan. North America and Europe saw growth with Dave the Diver and the finals. And you might remember that the Korean government imposed almost $9 million in sanctions for the lack of loot box communication. It was pretty funny. They addressed it. Here's what they said. To create a more enjoyable experience in MapleStory, Nexon discontinued sales of a major probability-based item and transition to a business model that offers the same experience paid for with in-game currency rather than a cash transaction, the company said. Which is ironic because I think Brawl Stars actually did it the opposite. They went for their battle pass being cash. All right. Also in earnings report, Ubisoft beat their Q3 net booking and it's looking at a record full year based on good performance and high hopes for Prince of Persia and Skull and Bones. Exola also released their winter 2024 state of play report. I covered that in a podcast, the fall version with Chris Huish. And so we'll be looking to do a deep dive with them in Q1 in a couple weeks, going a little bit more into direct to consumer and web shops. I think they have a lot more to talk about there. One final thing, IGN announced it will host IGN Live, an in-person three-day fan event in Los Angeles this summer, early June, RIP E3, featuring gaming and entertainment creators, developers, publishers, and enthusiasts. A portion of ticket sales will go to charity via Humble Bundle. It feels like with the lack of E3, you know, we have Summer Game Fest from Jeff Keighley, and now we have this IGN event. So it'll be interesting to see like what happens in summer now. And it's in LA, so I guess I have something to do in June. <laughs> oh, investments and M&As. This week, the Global Gaming Deals Activity Report from investgame.net dropped and just going quickly through it. So anybody and everybody should subscribe to their newsletter, so investgame.net. Anyways, deal-making activity in 2023 has been slow, half of what it was in 2020 and 2021, 2022, so no surprise there. M&A activity decreased, public offerings saw a moderate recovery. There were over 25 new early-stage gaming funds that appeared since 2020. So a lot of money being offered, a lot of new funds, and those funds are probably looking for some deals now. On the other hand, late stage investments, so those for companies that are scaling, went down from 6.7 billion to just 1.2 from 2021 to 2023. AI technology continued to see a rise in deals. And in terms of VC rankings, so the VC rankings is great because this is how you get virality for your reports. Investors love to post on X, on LinkedIn, and so forth. So tagging them and their funds is the best way to get the report out. And we'll look at the most active investors. Sisu from Finland has been one of the most active, if not the most active one. Bitcraft, 
and A16Z. And A16Z is a little bit of a confusing here because it's a very big fund. I think there's almost $1 billion fund, but I think they get the activity through those speed runs. So it's kind of like a Y Combinator take. And through that, you get to do a lot of smaller investments and, and pump up your activity. So I think they're kind of min-maxing the game here. Anyways, and then in terms of who wrote the biggest checks, well, A16Z was one of those. Griffin, who has been putting in pretty hefty seed investments and Moritz's Lightspeed, they invested $162 million into three deals. So if Moritz likes you, damn boy, you're going to get a lot of money. Eric Kress, you're holding your head. You know, back in the investment banking days, we always had rankings of deal makers, M&A or equity or whatever else. And it was always great to be on top of that, right? Those charts. But in this particular context, it's like quantity, right, for something like A16Z because of the speed round stuff and quantity of dollars, right, but concentrated on like, what, three companies that Lightspeed did? So, yeah, I think all these rankings are a little bit questionable. We'll see how they all turn out, right? You know, investing in these companies with no product and no cash flow and you know, they potentially get a product out in five to 10 years, yeah. you know, so whatever. Yeah, well, with VC model, like that's the case usually with early investments. But of course, with the late stage funds like A16Z and Griffin, and I mean, they are technically late stage, maybe mid stage because of their size. You would assume that they invest more into companies that are scaling. Yeah, right. So this is a weird, very strange value for seed round investing. Yes. Right. No product, no people. Yeah. No operations, no experience, Right. You know, you can't drop ship some guy PM from Blizzard and hope that you're going to build like a successful game in like three or four years. You know, it's like it's not the way the world works, but, you know, we'll see. The best ways to measure investments is the exits. So I think everybody can agree with that. Not the amount of investments, not the size of the investments, but how much you made money of them. Anyway, talking about other investments. So Epic Games has raised $1.5 billion investment from the Walt Disney Company. The investment marks Disney's significant entry into gaming, aiming for growth and expansion. And we're going to talk about this later in an article, I believe. So moving on to the next one, Monumental from Austin, Texas has acquired Congregate to redefine gaming future. Now, whoever was the publicist for this deal, <laughs> I think they should do a little bit better. There was a zero context really with the announcement, and I'm just going to do couple of quotations that are so weird. So, for example, with over 40 titles in their combined portfolio, the merger promised to deliver an unparalleled gaming experience, or that in a world where technology and human experience are increasingly intertwined, the gaming industry continues to evolve and reshape the cultural landscape. So the whole announcement was filled with these type of things, and there was no substance, no context. So anyways, if you need help with PR, Connect with uh, Deconstructor Fund, we will help the message to become clear, believable, and intelligent. Anyway, so US-based XR game developer Status Pro has raised 20 million Series A funding round led by Google Ventures with participation of Dream Sports. So Goggle Games coming out. US-based game developer studio Stoke Games has raised $5.5 million in funding led by Bitcraft to develop strategic shooter game. We got Austria-based tech company Atlas that has raised almost $5 million research grant to develop 3D generative AI asset creation tool. And last but not least, friend of the pod, gaming veteran Chris Heatherly has raised $3 million for new game venture, casual party game studio called Great 
big, beautiful tomorrow. And it's pretty cool for Chris Hadley to raise against his Web3 game during the sort of a VC crash and the crypto winter. So apparently he has something very interesting going on and, and curious to see what comes out. But congrats to Heatherly and his team. And you talked about a little bit, looks like trying to add some more live service components to an Among Us core, which is a brilliant idea. And congrats to Chris. I'm really excited to see where this one goes. Make me have faith in Web3, Chris. I know you can do it. <laughs> I believe in you. Make us all He's have faith. He's got some good ideas. I'm excited for him. Evangelist on this stuff, like he just never stopped. He, I don't think he's wavered once. He's a ride or die. Since this whole thing began. He should move his HQ to Dubai. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's the crypto capital. All right, layoffs, employment closures. Microsoft <laughs> bombshell laying off two thousand employees, which it wasn't a bombshell anyway, has caused the FTC to do a double take on the previous testimony stated in the merger that they would be mostly a horizontal acquisition, and so that should leave the companies to operate separately. So they're kind of breaking what they contended on this merger agreement with the FTC, that they would be standalone companies. So in that case, there should be no layoffs because they're actually working standalone. So another way for the FTC to go after Microsoft, I'm sure it'll do nothing. We'll see. Berlin-based Popcore is going through a wave of layoffs. They were a hyper-casual type company, I imagine, and they were acquired by Rollick a few year, a year ago. So hypercasual is clearly lost to the ether, thank Lord. So they probably just didn't adjust fast enough. All right, games? Helldivers 2 is off to a pretty incredible start. It was the best-selling title on Steam last week. To date, the game has shipped over 1 million units, and it hit a peak concurrent player figure of about 200,000 users, which is impressive. It's actually growing on Steam, which you very rarely see. It looks like, I don't want to say there's a long pair of legs, but it looks like there's a little pair of legs for this one. And of course, there was some comments about the developer having to make a quality game to ask for MTX, to earn the right to monetize, which is certainly an interesting perspective. It looks like GTA 6 might not be around the corner as we thought. After leaks and a grand reveal and discussions of dropping it in FY25, it looks like it's more likely to hit in FY26. Fiscal 25 means March of 2025. It could come out as soon as like something like May of 2025 would be in the fiscal 26. Correct. So They have a staggered fiscal year. They're not calendar. Right. Correct. They were planning on coming out in that March quarter. You know, 2025, and now it looks like they're pushing it out based upon their guidance that they gave in in their earnings report, which fucking means nothing, honestly. <laughs> I mean, the stock got, took a little bit of a hit, but the timing is almost irrelevant. It's the scale and the, the potential of the game is really what matters. So we'll see. Speaking of scale, Eggy Party is finally coming to the United States on February 23rd. I am hyping this one up. This is the competitor to Stumble Guys. It is also the competitor to Fall Guys. It has done gangbusters in terms of revenue inside of China. It is actually in soft launch in many European countries. I had it here in Sweden on the App Store. I've been playing it for a little bit. Expect to see some more coverage from us next week as I get a little bit deeper into the game, but it is fully featured. It's all there. It doesn't appear to be heavily localized, but UGC is there. The experience is there. I'm super excited. I would absolutely recommend picking up Eggy Party if you have the chance this week. Battle for the Golden Spatula in China, or as we know it, Team Fight Tactics in the West, has moved up 36 spaces to number nine in the worldwide top grossing charts for January, raking in $57 million, according to AppMagic. And Neil at Mobile Gamer Biz speculates this is because they had a New Year's season update, which has been a big 
boost for the title. But wow, Team Fight Tactics still around, still monetizing. Woo! Exclusively in China. <laughs> yes, very much agree. I mean, I just have to give a ton of credit to both teams. I actually worked on this game as part of Riot West, and it's launched and published out of Tencent. But you know, really taking again the idea of like a really fun game, an audience that loves this IP, and then adding in Eastern-based monetization. I just wish that play pattern and that monetization type worked in the West. It just never been able to really translate. But you can see the success. You can see it right here. So good job. Good job, Riot folks, Tencent folks. This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fund really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing a full-on deconstruction first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. I wanted to talk to you about Heroic Labs. Building a successful game is hard enough without worrying about building your own game tech as well. Heroic Labs provides a comprehensive game stack to help you get your game into market faster and scale beyond the competition. With their Unity game framework Hero, you can cut development and prototyping time in half and quickly add social, economy, and reward systems to grow your game. Satori, the live ops platform built specifically for the games industry, lets you run live events, A-B tests, deliver dynamic content to players, and always keep your game growing. Nakama, the industry's leading open source game server lets you develop locally, providing all social and competitive features for your game, and then seamlessly transition to their Heroic Cloud hosted service and easily scale to meet the largest of audience demands. Find out how to get started at heroiclabs.com. All right, and now for more big mobile games, wanted to talk a little bit about Hasbro's earnings, which gave us some numbers on Monopoly Go. So here's a quote that we saw from some of the earnings reports. Monopoly Go from Partner Scopely is the number one mobile game launch of all time in the U.S., outperforming launches of global phenomenon like Pokemon Go and Candy Crush. Wow. They're saying it was bigger than Candy Crush's launch? That's pretty cool. And the fastest mobile title to reach $1 billion in the U.S., and the game continues to break records. So here's what's interesting. In Q4 alone... The game drove more than 800 million in revenue worldwide for Scopely. As far as our financial participation goes, this is Hasbro speaking, for revenue and profit, it's like having the equivalent of a $1 billion movie supporting Monopoly, except for every year, with the impact growing sequentially as the game works through our minimum guarantees 
and marketing allowances. So we've talked about this in the past, how there are some abilities to do deals, which allow the licensor to get some more money back from marketing. So really interesting here. So here are the actual numbers that we're seeing for the first time versus what we sometimes see from the external data sources. So holy shit, 800 million in Q4 alone. Like, so let's just multiply that times four. So 3.2 billion, that's more than three supercell games added together. And we're gonna talk about that later because in their note, they talked about three of the games being billion dollar games. So I really like the movie comparison here especially when you think about games like the Mario movie coming out and surpassing a billion. And it's really funny because they actually have had a Monopoly movie in development for 10 years. Ridley Scott was attached to it. And I don't even know if he still is. This game was in development for five years. So suck it, Ridley. The game teams come out on top, bigger than movies. And so just wrapping this up, wanted to mention that in Istanbul, which will be live and also streaming, I'll be doing a fireside chat with VP of marketing, Jamie Berger. And should you have any questions, burning questions that you want me to ask him about Monopoly Go or other Scopely titles, DM me in the Deconstructor Fund Slack channel, and I'll try to get those in as much as I can. So you can hear a little bit more from them, how they're feeling about Monopoly Go. So moving on to that other billion dollar story, Mishka, I think you want to talk about Supercell's comfortable feeling uncomfortable. Yeah. So let's talk about Supercell, the annual topic at this time. And it's always at this time for context because a Finnish company has to publicize their earnings report. And Supercell being located in Finland, paying taxes in Finland, which they're very proud of and Finns should be very thankful of, their numbers are coming out. And this is probably one of the main reasons why Ilka does this blog post at the same time. So this is an earnings report, if you will. Now, the, the facts from the earnings report were that the revenue was down 4.2%. It was still 1.7 billion euros. And the EBITDA was down over 8% compared to last year, and that was 580 million euros. The blog post starts with Ilka describing how he serves a little bit of uh, facts to the team. Not only these numbers, but the fact that they haven't released a new game since 2018, their live games weren't working, and they failed outside of top 10 publishers in 2023. The article is, of course, long, and it's a very interesting read, so I suggest everybody, like everybody will be reading the blog post, but please do. But basically, he talks about three things that have been changing. So their approach to new games, their approach to live games, and the leadership teams. Now, when it comes to the approach to new games, he starts talking about that the new teams are now being viewed as startups, where they previously were viewed as mini companies with the heads of games as mini CEOs. Anyway, they now have a systemic approach of forming the best teams. Ilka gives his own admission of failure that they haven't been rigorous enough about deciding who starts the new game teams or how they get started. And too often that has ended up with the teams which have not had all the required skill set or the team dynamics have not been what they say they should have been. And the, the teams have been started with, with crazy ambitious, resourceful individuals who execute fast, are not afraid to take risks and make aggressive and sometimes painfully scary changes quickly. So that's what they want them to do as entrepreneurs internally. 
The second part with the new teams is that there will be more trust. So he says how he's very allergic towards the green light processes where the game teams eventually end up pleasing the committee and the dev teams won't feel independent in this type of a setup. And he talks about that entrepreneurs operate under a well-defined set of constraints, which in this case means funds or runway, as the founders know. And that will be the forcing mechanic to get shit done and move as quickly and efficiently as possible. The third thing is that they are forcing the teams to operate in an environment of full transparency. So new game teams must put their game in front of players as fast as possible. If players' feedback meets or exceeds expectations, great, now we can more invest more aggressively. If not, that's also okay, now the team knows it has to pivot. He says, I don't believe you create hit games by asking players what they want, but I do believe you have to show them early and face the reality of their feedback. He also talked about the distraction-free environment. This is very interesting. As an extreme example, one of the game teams decided to move out of the main office into their own little space nearby. And so that means getting out of the served coffee and all the pleasures and the boondoggles of a bustling office. Anyways, that's for startups. Do you have any guesses on which team was it? Uh, I have no idea. Decided to go and farm their own little team? All right. I have no idea. It could be anybody. So talking a little bit about their scale-ups. So that's how they call the live teams. Ilka's mission was that for years, we did not realize the full potential of our great games because we frankly liked our small team so much. And this is admission to treating Heyday or Boom Beach as like stepchildren. Actually, I don't know how stepchildren are treated, but <laughs> for the case of saying, so they weren't given any kind of love in this case and no marketing, that type of a support. And even though these were billion dollar games, they were still like bottom of the barrel and not really given the love that they needed. And now there's more focus to it. And actually Maya Hoffrey, who was our last Istanbul events, actually two of them, is leading Heyday, really growing the team and putting more effort and pushing on live ops. Wait, Maya went to Supercell? Yeah, she lives here. Oh. Yeah, we love Maya. She lives here. She's in the whole events and enjoying the absolutely brutal Finnish winter. So expect the uh, podcast on that to drop when she's absolutely fed up of this. Anyways, so the scaling phase is very different and requires different type of thinking. What we did here was to redefine what a live game cell is. And he also talks about the structure in some game teams where there are subcells, which is the large independent game cell with one common mission is split into several subcells, all of which contribute to overall mission of the larger cell. I mean, this is quite normal, to be honest with that. And then he says about leadership team. So there's changes in the leadership team. Two new people. Sarah is coming from, I believe, Mojang. She's going to be heading live games. And then Fernanda, who's coming from King, is joining as a CMO. And again, bringing that sort of a big brand expertise and know-how. And the only OGs on the board are actually Ilka and Janne Stelman, chief financial officer, who was actually Ilka's partner at Digital Chocolate, his previous companies, they've been together for a long time. But pretty much everybody else has left the leadership team and some have moved on to the board and some have moved out. So that's the summary of the text. Before I give my opinion, Phil, how do you feel about this blog post? They have this great slide. Apparently he had a company offsite where they went through this. And one of the slides says processes and structures will not be the solution. And I'm sure so many people who are in middle management or large corporations jumped up and down and said, yes, yes, yes. And of course, what they go on to describe in this blog post is processes and structures. <laughs> that will be the solution. Like you just described live games as scale-ups. We call it a gate process. Yeah. yeah. You talked about adding in middle management and I was like, oh, okay. Interesting Producers. take. Producers. <laughs> 
So first of all, Supercell doesn't owe us jack shit in terms of what they say to us. They don't owe anyone anything. The only thing they need to do is they convince themselves that they're on the best path. What I do see here is that he's completely abandoned his goal as being the world's least powerful CEO. That seems to be gone forever now. It'd be great for him just to come out and say that. And it's not to shame him. It's, I think it's courage. It's like, hey, we had a direction. It wasn't working out. And we decided to pivot. I think there's courage and I think there's honesty in that. And I, I wish they were more direct in how they said that. But they're implementing what they call subcells. They're just building hierarchy like any other company. And when you have all these things that happen in other companies, when you have hierarchies, when you have big organizations, things like politics will start to emerge. So they said they hired juniors now. Okay, what is the career path for a junior? You know, I have a particular role within Supercell now. You know, it's not these five people getting in a room and, you know, everyone coming to consensus. There are hundreds of people potentially on this game team. Even if you're at 50 people, you know, someone's doing offers, they might have an idea for something else and this other person kind of owns it and they own it because, you know, they want to look good in front of the company. How are bonuses paid out? There's all these things that start to happen when you scale up and you add more and more people and you need more and more process. And again, people think process is a bad word, but process is how you keep stability. It's how you keep things humming along. And what I don't see here is what is going to be the supercell approach to all of these things that come with corporations? How are they going to keep themselves on the straight and narrow? And again, maybe they have it internally. They don't owe us jack shit, but I was kind of shocked that they don't seem to have a real approach on how supercell is going to approach being a large organization. And just saying that, like, we're going to hand it off to game teams is not a real answer because each of those teams is going to have all of their implicit functions. So if I want to move teams in Supercell, how does that work? Is that a different structure? Who decides pay? There's all these things that start to emerge from this that they're going to have to figure out. And I was just surprised that there wasn't a better answer to this in the post on how Supercell is going to approach this. It just seems like they're using the usual playbook. And that does give me a little pause. My only comment on this is I left the world of corporations long ago. And this is part of the reason because after reading this goddamn article every year, I'm going to have stress dreams for the next two days, right? It is like being a big company sucks balls. I mean, at the end of the day, it's f terrible, you know, and that's why I don't work at a big company. I work for myself, right? And I know I have luxury to do so, but this is exactly why the big is painful, right? Is having to deal with all this process and policies and procedures and all this other crap. But if you're a big company, you need to be run like a big company. You can't be continued to run as a small company. It just doesn't work that way. So this is what they're going through. This is what they've been going through since I started the podcast five years ago when I said very specifically that you cannot run a company the way Supercell runs a company and hope to scale because that's not the way big companies are run, right? And this is exactly what is kind of happening with Supercell right now is that they need to run as a big company. They need gates. They need a green light process. Call it whatever the fuck they want to call it. It's another green light process, right? Now I'm going to be stressed all weekend. I'm going to be screaming at my kids, kicking my dog. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Ilka. All right, for the privilege of listening and reading your article. But wasn't oh this God. like, hey, everybody, we need to be a big company and we need to start to add in all of these different layers. It felt like speaking out of both sides of his mouth, so to speak, Right. If you have all these processes, but not really have a process, how do you move around Supercell? Like, how do you go from one team to another and you have to completely learn something all over again? <sighs> We've seen this model too. Like, this was the, we called it the city state model at EA back in the day, which is we're going to buy a bunch of studios and let them behave independent, but we're going to give them HR and pay systems and accounting support. So I just think the pendulum swings when people talk about this. And I think there's something in the middle 
that has to land for this to be a successful strategy. And I felt like he didn't have clarity on what that middle ground was because it sounded like we want to have both sides. Can I make one more suggestion to your point about this is that they need to find the right leadership people that know how to manage a big company. That's what they need, right? They need people in place, COO, presence of studios. Like they need that operational layer in order to like build these type of processes, you know, and like absolutely run it like a big company, right? That that's what they seem not to have. I mean, they are scaling that up. Yeah. That was a part of their new hires, right? I mean, they are moving in that direction, yeah. right? The head of new live games, she's Swedish, by the way, and she came she came from Dice, so she's gonna right, throw okay, obviously. Okay. <laughs> she came from Dice? Yeah, she's a former Dicer. She went the head of live games coming from Dice? <laughs> wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I missed this part. Yeah. She's been a king, right? Dude. Everyone in Sweden has worked at Dice, by the way. I know, but how can you fail up after the live services at Dice, whoa, whoa, right? Whoa, whoa, whoa. And then go to Supercell. Battlefield 1 sold a lot of copies. We beat Call of Duty that year. Excuse me. <laughs> As a live service? As a live service? It is when you sell premium up front for 30 bucks. Oh, Do we need to talk about the definition of live service? Yeah, we, we need to go through this again. Let's fact check a little bit. So Sarah Janssen Bach, she's the head of live games. And she was at DICE as a senior producer on Star Wars Battlefront franchise, but she left and she was a senior studio director at King. And then after that, she was head of games at Mojang. So it's not that she came from DICE. Oh, okay. A okay. couple of steps That's between. Swedish tour of duty right there. Yeah, come on, Phil. <laughs> That's what like, I thought. She has actually had life service experience <laughs> to get that job. Yeah, yeah. And the CMO, I think, also comes from King. If I remember correctly, we talked about her when both these hires happen, that they are legit big company, big franchise. All right. Three of their franchises are billion dollar annual franchises like Heyday, Brawl Stars and something else. And then Clash of Clans and Clash Royale are also like multi-billion dollar annual franchises. No, they're not annual multi-billion. Like they make 1.7 a year. So it can't be three billion dollar franchises. But they are all billion-dollar franchises in lifetime earnings. So you're correct in that sense. Not annually. Okay. All right. All right. Got it. Okay. <laughs> but here's the point, though. They're hiring all these executives, and then they're going out and saying all these teams are going to be entrepreneurial and have so much power at the team level now. Well, then what are the executives <laughs> going to do? What are they going to have autonomy over? It's only for the scale-ups where they have this. So the executives are probably more focused on the scale-up teams, so the big seeds or big cells. And then there's two different organizations now. There's the new games, and then there's the live games. And they have different structures. That's how I understood this text. And they have different people. Man, how complicated is that from a compensation and internal organization perspective? My God. <laughs> so, I'm always excited for these letters. Uh, I'm excited to see what the next one is like. Let's see what shakes out on the PL. What's best about this blog post that is done annually is that this is PR and this is fantastic PR. Ilka comes off as very genuine and a humble leader, in my opinion. And in my opinion, he's also... That, like that is him as a character. And I also like this PR piece because it usually lasts seven years and the CEO is informing that they had a down year. So I think they had only one growth year in between here. And these are taken in a very positive way. It just talks about the power of good PR, how you can turn the story and have a very positive impact, even if you're not delivering the happiest news, which are around growth. And also, Phil, as you said multiple times, like criticizing Ilka or Supercell is like criticizing somebody who got A plus for their work. So it's splitting hairs. Anyways, what I find interesting in this blog post slash PR piece is the things that were not talked about that were talked about last year. For example, they talked about being a mobile first, but not mobile exclusive. 
the PC studio that was fully missing right now in this blog post. They talked last year about M&A. Now they don't talk about M&A. They talked about Supercell Engine last year, how that could be potential growth path. And in this one, they talk about, you know what? You can choose anything. You can go work in Unity, in Unreal, any engine, anything you want to do. So those are interesting things that we're missing. I remember Shanghai. Yeah. They had the Chinese studio at 1.2. <laughs> that seems to have gone missing on the panel. <laughs> no, no, no. Clash Mini. I don't know. Anyway, so overall, the conversation of these cells or mini CEOs or entrepreneurs, I think to me, they sound a little bit semantic. And I think reading this, it feels like Supercell is leaning into this lean startup thinking. And Lean Startup is a book by Eric Ries, who really spearheaded, and I think it was 2008, the sort of a startup revolution where concepts like fail fast, pivot, MVP were at the forefront. And I, as well as many others, believe that the ideas behind lean startups have been net damaging because of four reasons. Number one, it encourages experimentation over having a compelling strategy of what you're doing. Focuses on MVPs and really pushes the teams to fail fast so that they can pivot versus teams that can build and build something tangible, deliberate. And it leads to very incremental products because you're trying to improve on something that already exists. And overall, there's an overemphasis on product and no emphasis on growth, aka marketing. So that's what I feel is happening with these small teams. They're fully detached from the corporate noise with limited runway, with unlimited passion. It sounds like they will be experimenting a lot, running plenty of tests on MVPs, pivoting, building incremental products eventually, and not thinking about marketing from the get-go, which is very important. I'm not saying this just because Jen is on the podcast. You have to start thinking from the marketing from the startup in a very deliberate way because it's not that you made a game and then somebody in marketing will pick it and just advertise it to the top. That's not the world we live in. Now, overall, I could be wrong. Maybe there's a method to this madness of new game development. I just hope that these small teams have to think about the strategy of what they're doing before starting to do these MVPs and testing in a very transparent ways and pivot because that's what real founders have to do. To get funded, you have to present of what you're doing. Of course, there's the team, which is the pre-seed phase, but eventually you have to present a compelling strategy, a market research, understanding what you're doing and why and how you're going to grow this. And these small teams, they do have oversight. It's called the board and they do have advice. They're called mentors. So those are kind of like the things that entrepreneurs have. And I hope that in this setup, these new teams will be also supported rather than they can go into a nearby office building and prototype until they run out of runway. My final word here is Ilka. Thank you for another letter that will be in my stress-free <laughs> nightmares for the next few nights. And I'm looking forward to the next one next year in which you can make me stress my, myself to sleep. <laughs> Why one final thing? that I forgot that I read in there that I thought was different was that they strive to get the game in players' hands earlier than they have before. And so I do think, Mishka, to your point, what I feel like they think they're going to do differently is get player feedback earlier, which is something they haven't really done that much. What are you talking about? They've had betas for like three years on shit. No, like like super early. Uh, yeah, so think about the other way. So when you read this, is that what they're going to do now. So think about what they haven't been doing now. So they have been, like he says, now we're going to focus more on building really teams that can execute, that have all the strengths. So before, they apparently had teams. 
that weren't complete, so there were key talent missing, and they were going for too long without testing anything, just working on something on the side without the needed resources. Like that's how I'm reading it. Like these are the changes to prevent that was happening. And also this structure, because of the, you know how much time you have the runway time, that meant that they didn't have a runway and they were just working on something for as long as they wanted until somebody said, hey, just stop or go on, on another project. So anyways, interesting to kind of read in between the lines to understand why these changes are potentially made. Okay, all right. Hey game devs, are you tired of dealing with complicated payment processes all over the world? Well, Exola's got your back with Exola PayStation. It has a simple, user-friendly interface that makes it easy for players to pay for your games and in-game content however they want. And because the Exola PayStation user interface is adaptive and accessible on smartphones, tablets, and PCs, your players will have a seamless experience no matter their preferred device. Players can save their favorite payment methods for future purchases, and on mobile, even charge purchases directly to their phone carrier bill. On the back end, you can customize your checkout with game-specific integration options like sidebars and iPhones frames, as well as change colors, fonts, and images to make PayStation look and feel like a natural part of your game. Ready to see Exola's PayStation in action? Visit exola.pro slash payments dash DOF or visit the link in this podcast description. The games industry is experiencing unprecedented growth, with global revenues projected to reach a staggering $268 billion by 2025. But with more players than ever connecting across platforms and devices, how can your game stand out against the competition? AppsFlyer has created AppsFlyer for Games to help you unlock your player's true LTV by providing a wealth of game measurement solutions, unique industry insights, and proven best practices. Our dedicated hub is packed with innovative products, industry partnerships, and unrivaled expertise to ensure your game brand adapts and thrives. We understand that every game is unique and AppsFlyer's data-driven insights allow us to cater to your specific needs. We know that in today's evolving landscape, staying ahead of the curve is crucial. Trust in AppsFlyer for games to guide you through this exciting journey. We have the tools, the knowledge, and the passion to help you succeed in this ever-expanding landscape. Together, we'll conquer new worlds, both real and fantasy, break records, and create gaming experience that leave a lasting impact. Get in touch with AppsFlyer for games today and unleash your game's true potential. AppsFlyer for games supercharging the gaming landscape all right moving on to someone else who is leveling up so this is disney invest 1.5 billion in epic to create a persistent universe it's going to combine disney and fortnite character stories and worlds it's very similar to the lego deal actually the announcement follows a previous deal between epic and lego that resulted in the launch of lego fortnite and here's how Disney explained it. Bob Iger was like all over the place talking about this and also pretending as if they've never done games before. That was pretty funny to someone who has been at Disney and seen a lot of the games. So they said, in addition to being a world-class games experience and interoperating with Fortnite, the new Persistent Universe will offer a multitude of opportunities for consumers to play, watch, and shop and engage with content characters and stories from Disney, Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars, Avatar. I always kind of forget Avatar is part of their family. <laughs> we all do. <laughs> Which we Remember should the probably Avatar game forget. no one covered? Yeah, I do. <laughs> Average Farms remembers. Ubisoft kind of said in their earnings that Avatar was okay. I'd have to look into that because I was like, really? It didn't seem that way. But anyway, okay. Untrue. Untrue that that was okay. okay. Yeah, untrue. <laughs> <laughs> Untrue. Got it. <laughs> Players, gamers, and fans will be able to create their own stories, experiences, express their fandom in distinctly Disney way, and share content with each other in ways that they love. This will be powered by the Unreal Engine, obviously, because it's inside of Epic. That sounds like a lot of promises. 
you know, curious to see where this is going. Cress, I think you've got some great thoughts on this. I'll chime in later. <laughs> <laughs> I have so many thoughts on this because on the surface, it sounds like a really good thing for most. But on the positives, right, I think this is actually huge news for Epic in general because you're actually creating some kind of metaverse experience for Disney, which is the largest IP holder on the freaking planet by a long shot. And it creates a destination for the broadest audience possible, right? It's basically shot against the bow against Roblox in particular, right? Because it presumably they're not going to be doing as much or if anything with Roblox at this point of all of Disney IP, right? So that's not good for Roblox, particularly given their demographic. For Disney, if you don't know, they need something to revitalize their brands. They are having a lot of challenges out there right now. Marvel and Star Wars are kind of at an all-time low versus their heyday, you know, during the, the, the big Infinity War popularity of that series. Mm. And they're really struggling, despite clearly having the best IP in the business. This is also a great promotion vehicle for Disney IP. You know, bringing all their IP to one popular platform could be huge, you know, assuming that Epic can execute against the concept of a metaverse for Disney IP. And it was a positive for the stock. I think it gave investors hope that Disney has a plan, right, of revitalizing them. So the stock was up like 10% because basically Iger is doing something, right, to reverse the company's fortunes, right? But here are my concerns, and this is obviously, <laughs> you knew this was coming, but, you know, despite all the PR and promotion benefit for Disney here, outsourcing game development to a third party is not always the best strategy, as I've said many times. That is their strategy, right? So, how material is a royalty rate from a revenue stream coming from UEFN going to be for Disney longer term, right? So to put it in perspective, Disney revenue for the year is $88 billion, with a B. <laughs> like that's how much money these guys make, okay? Let's say best case scenario, they can drive like a billion dollars, even $2 billion from UEFN over the long term, right? That's like 150 to $300 million business, which is pure profit, which is awesome. Don't get me wrong, but it's fucking mice nuts for Disney, dude. That's nothing, absolutely nothing, right? This is not going to move the needle for them, right? But again, it helps promotion, et cetera, et cetera, and could be good for their IPs. The other big concern, and I've heard this from numerous people actually in the ecosystem, is that Epic doesn't have enough bandwidth to do this, to execute against this. They don't have enough developers, right? Like they have a lot of competing priorities, right? They have the Unreal Engine, they have the UEFN Engine, they have Fortnite, they have Lego, they have the store, and now Disney. It's like, they're gonna need a legion of developers just to execute against this idea, fundamentally. I don't know if they even have a full team to put against this thing at this point. I, I just don't think they do. And this may be very unpopular statement, is that, you know, the layoffs, that happened may have helped them in order to get the resources in order to build a team to build against this, right? So they can replace the people that got laid off with actual developers that can actually make this experience. But overall, I think there's an absolutely huge execution risk for Epic to actually make this thing a reality. And the final thing, which I've said many times in the podcast, and I will say it until my dying day, Disney is the freaking worst as a licensor. It is an absolute pain in the ass imagine just doing dealing with one license is bad enough like star wars or marvel imagine if you had to deal with all the licenses at disney and all the fucking inner internal fiefdoms that manage them right it is going to be a disaster you're going to need like 30 or 40 people just to manage that alone right like 
This place is a cesspool of arrogance and nonsense about their IPs. The fundamental problem is that there are certain people in the organization that think that something like Rick and Morty is the same as something like Iron Man, right? And that they should be treated the same in a virtual world environment, right? That's a thing. That's part of the reason that Disney Infinity failed was because there was so much infighting about who is getting supported from this stupid platform that they couldn't deal with it anymore. It's a dystopian nightmare at Disney with a licensing problem. And then the other fundamental thing is that how are you going to handle something like Deadpool versus Princess Elsa, right? Like in what world do those two things actually communicate with each other or play with, interact with each other in any feasible way without completely destroying the IPs that you're dealing with. It already does. You can get Elsa right now and you can get a Deadpool skin and you can have Elsa shoot Deadpool in Fortnite right now. I understand that. But if you're actually building a virtual world for Disney and you have to like deal with them individually and collectively, it's going to be a nightmare. It is going to be a nightmare. And anybody, you want to talk about stress dreams. I don't know who can handle that kind of bullshit. Generally speaking, I think this is great for UAFN. Like it validates them really from that perspective. And it gives them potentially a great temple experience for the platform to reach the broadest audience possible. And I think, you know, the execution risk is real, but I think both parties are likely very aligned on the opportunity. It's really how the execution works is going to be the biggest challenge. And we're, I'm sure we're going to hear about it over the next couple of years. So first of all, having been there, I was at Disney for six years I did licensing. I had to deal with the Pixar versus Disney. I mean, just making a Disney monopoly and trying to figure out who gets what space on the front of the package was like the biggest nightmare. Right. And that was before Marvel and Star Wars joined Disney. Supercell, pay attention. This could be your future. <laughs> exactly. The other thing to really keep in mind is approvals and how much longer approvals take. So, so luckily, Epic already kind of understands how this works because they work with all the licensors today. And so they work with Lego, right? Like the entire Lego universe is, you know, is already figured out from an approval standpoint, but there is no other more difficult licensor to work with probably than Disney, maybe Riot. Like we were a pain in the ass at Riot with any of our partners that we deal with. So in any event, I want to talk a little bit about the vicious circle that we're on with the Disney leadership team and and the idea of games. And so it's a little bit like the Hokey Pokey, which is this cheesy American wedding tradition song. So you put your checkbook in, you take your checkbook out. So Cress loves when I do my musical renditions, but I think that was a good one. No, Boomer. Absolute Boomer. Yeah, boomer? Totally. Or, okay, absolute, absolute Boomer. All right, that's fine. So I got to see this firsthand, you know, in the aughts. This was the checkbook in era. So this was the, hey, we're going to buy Avalanche. We're going to buy other studios. We're going to make our own games. And quickly, they came to learn that they didn't have the stomach for this type of investment and waiting and the predictability that comes with the movie industry and knowing that a movie is going to launch on this date. When you have a public company, you have to report earnings and your game is late and it messes that everything up. Leadership didn't want to deal with that. And so the lesson became that licensing is the best business model on the planet for them at that time. And in fact, a lot of their business model today is mostly licensing. They do a little bit of some publishing, but mostly licensing. Now, what's interesting about where this is heading is this is a licensing deal that used to be just a percentage of the products that you sell. 
I think that this might have some engagement aspects to it, where they're going to not only take a percentage of the skins that they sell, a percentage of the creator UEFN piece, but also a percentage of the DAU and MAU, somehow an engagement metric will pipe into them. And I don't know for sure, let me just say that, but if I had to imagine negotiating that deal where there isn't that much revenue coming off in a creator-led economy, there's going to have to be some other kind of metrics and revenue coming from engagement. And so I think that this new hybrid model of we're going after not only this licensing model that has this new factor in it, but we're going to invest in this as well. We're going to give you 1.5 billion, gives us another bigger piece of the pie that I think this is going to be a new model that people look at because it's kind of like still licensing, except for we're not going to buy the studio. We're not going to take on the burn rate. We're going to give you a little extra to make us something really cool, but you're going to take on all the risk because this is Disney's model. Like we don't want to take on all of that risk. So Disney, in a sense, got jealous, copied what Lego just did with Fortnite and said, you guys can't be the only ones with nice things. I really want some nice things too. And they basically did the same model. I think Lego put in 2 billion. If I remember, it was like Lego and Sony and it might've been a little over 2 billion. So be on the lookout now for these new kind of licensing plus investment hybrids. If I was at Roblox, I would literally be on the phone because I'm jealous calling Paramount calling for Star Trek, you know, all of the license, all of the Nickelodeon licenses, Warner Brothers for all of the multiverses licenses and say, hey, can we go on a date? Because I need some sort of type of new business model for what they are doing. Anyway, that was kind of my impression coming out of this. But Phil, I think you wanted to talk about like Disney Infinity and going back to that era, which was also a huge era for them. I mean, you guys already touched on, I mean, Disney already tried this. It was called Disney Infinity. It was the idea of taking a bunch of IPs, putting them together and adding UGC and they failed. And to your point, it looks like there was a lot of corporate infighting that led to their downfall. And you know, I've always heard people are trying to reboot Disney Infinity. I think Javier from Scopely, CEO, used to work on Disney Infinity earlier in his career. But I think there's the other side of this, which is Epic's perspective. And it turns out that building UGC platforms is really fucking hard and it's really fucking expensive. So when you think about how much venture capital Roblox took on and how long it took them to build the platform, you know, that was over a decade. And even before their last round, you know, they had taken close to half a billion dollars in venture capital. It is very expensive to build out UGC platforms. And as we've been talking about on the podcast, they don't even have one of the most fundamental things you need to get a UGC flywheel going, which is allowing creators to monetize and sell items in their game which of course attracts more creators because they know that there's money here. And of course, when you have more creators, that means that you can make better content. If you make better content, you can attract more players. And they've really been trying to coast on this cosmetic rev share deal where even Epic gets a cut of their own money if they can get enough play share with their first party playgrounds. And so there's just a lot of infrastructure things that Epic needs to get right to continue to move forward on this. And the roadmap, by the way, Unreal for Fortnite, it's public. And you can see dates shifting around and things starting to get delayed, but you need a ton of capital to make this happen. And I think Epic's been running a little bit of low. I think they've been running low on capital. And one of the things that was reported is that this was a down round in terms of valuation for Epic oh, compared wow. to the money they took, I think it was a year or two ago. So they've been needing more and more ammo to keep this going. And as we know, Unreal is not going to do it for them. Unreal does what? $100, $200 million in, in business per year. So they basically have been surviving off Fortnite cosmetic sales for a while, which of course isn't like a small chunk of change, but 
There's IP holders to give out money to. There's overhead, there's service costs. There's just a lot of things that make this very difficult. You know, I expect they're going to need more capital to keep us going. I think they probably have another round. I'm not quite sure what their exit strategy is. I don't know if Eric or Jenny or, you know, even Mishka, like where's Tim Sweeney's head at? Like, is this about IPO? Is this about getting acquired by Disney? I don't understand what the end point is for him in terms of Epic. This is about IPO. Yeah. You think this is about IPO? They've already communicated that they're trying to go public. Right. Okay. It could be as soon as next year if Ooh. things go well. well. That's a prediction. Well, the IPO market is still shut the fuck down right now. So it's like no one's going public. And if they are, they're not doing all that well. But hopefully it opens up by next year. And so it's something like Roblox, right? Which loses tons of money. Yet everyone wants to believe in the metaverse, right? But then it's a question of how you rate this versus Roblox in terms of their long-term potential, right? Yeah, that will be the job for Goldman to sell them the IPO. Right. Absolutely. (laughs) I have only one. I'm a man of people. So I want to ask this question. On LinkedIn, there was sort of a consensus going on that since they received this massive chunk of change, why did they fire all those people? And should they actually hire those people back? So 800 people lost their jobs at Epic. And now Epic gets $1.5 billion from Disney. What's going on? Are executives greedy? What is happening? Of course, executives are greedy, but what is happening behind this? God, I get the frustration. I already kind of mentioned this. You know, again, we were rejiggering the organization so that they would get rid of all these like pet projects and things that weren't really strategic for them to build UEFN and the engine, right? They laid off all these people. Part of the reason was likely because they anticipated they were going to have to hire a ton of people in order to gain development to develop these things, among other things. So I think actually the chaos gave them the flexibility of spending against these opportunities. That's the way the business works. You know, I'm sorry, it sucks, right? But like priorities change and strategies change and you need get rid of the HR person in order to, you know, get the right engineer. It will be like eight HR people to get the right engineer. That's the way the world works, unfortunately. There you have it. I think we've exhausted <laughs> ourselves. Unpopular. <laughs> yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Next week, we've got a lot of things we didn't get to this week. Well, next week, we'll hear all the Xbox news. Oh, that's true. We'll see how Phil Spencer does the dance, dude. He's going to be dancing up there dude, for an hour on a podcast. Like, by the way, yeah, the format of this thing is crazy, too. Like, it's so fucking complicated that he can't write a press release. He has to do an hour-long podcast. <laughs> so, we'll see. We'll see. I'll be listening to that podcast for sure. And Laura is back next week. I'm in Paris. So... Oh. All righty. But no one gives a shit. Why are you saying it? (laughs) That's true. That's true. I don't know. I'm saying it for myself. Anyways. Uh, Sender croissant. All right. See you, everyone. See you next week. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, are you a member of the Deconstructor Fund Slack group? If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructoroffun.com slash slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening.